Father, we are hopelessly lost. We are without any means of our own to reconcile ourselves to you. And your word is so clear on that, Father, that we have no hope apart from you and your work through your Son. And that is the central message of this book, Father, that we can only come to you on your terms by means of your Son. And we are thankful, Father, that you made that way available, for there would have been none otherwise. And we know, Father, we are surrounded in this world by men and women who have yet to know this truth. Some of them are in our own families, our neighborhoods, our schools. They sit next to us at work. They... uh, they participate with us in sports. They're, they're the parents of our kids' best friends. They're people we see all the time, Father. And yet, when the day comes and neither of us are here on the earth, them and us, they will not be where we are, and that's a sad thing to consider, Father. I pray that what we're learning tonight about how the world has deceived itself would be an opportunity for us to use wisdom in those conversations and that we would be better positioned, um, working with your Spirit, to teach them about the truth. So I pray, Father, tonight as we learn, this learning is putting itself in our heart in a way that we will bring it back to mind when the time is right and we will use it in an effective way. That's our hope tonight, Father. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in chapter 2, Romans chapter 2. Paul is at work knocking down the major religious lies that deceive mankind. So far we've dealt with two of these. That was last week. Uh, The first one we shot down, or Paul shot down, was paganism. Paul started by saying paganism is where all false religions started, where all religious lies came from, and it is also the principal cause for the course of humanity's depravity over history. They focus on the creature and they emphasize the flesh over the spirit and it becomes a chase to who can enjoy their flesh more. But out of paganism came that second great religious lie that we talked about, moralism. Moralism is the belief that people are good enough to get into heaven. That we are, that others can be. It assumes God grades us on a curve or gives credit for effort. And therefore, we conclude that all but the very worst of humanity are going to find their way into heaven somehow. And of course, we're not the very worst. Today, you can find so-called Christian pastors teaching that hell doesn't exist. Which is an example of the lie of moralism. It's just a different twist on it. So those two lies cover a lot of ground. That's what we spent last week on. Many of the world's religions and even some non-religious mindsets like agnostics or atheists or whatever, they all fall into the category of either paganism or moralism. But as much ground as those two categories cover, there's still two more that Paul is going to address. Tonight we're going to study the third. That one I've called nomianism. Nomianism. If you have your chart with you, the one we've handed out from night one, maybe you still have it tucked in your Bible, I hope, or taped to the back of your iPad or whatever you do, you'll see that this topic begins chapter 2, verse 12. It's within the third block on false teachings about righteousness, and we're looking at the third of those, nomianism. Following nomianism, you can already see we start a fourth called Judaism. I've called it Judaism. That's not exactly the right term. I'll talk about that in a little while. But it's in chapter 3. So we're going to look at the first of those tonight. But I brought up Judaism, the the last of the four, because that touches a little on the one we're going to do tonight. Because obviously living as a Jew also includes following the law of Moses. And that aspect of Judaism, the aspect of doing the law, may lead you to think that when Paul talks about these two sections back to back, that it's all just one continuous thought, one continuous discussion about Jew versus Gentile. 
But they're not. And I'm going to show you that tonight as we move through them. There's clear differences between these two. Nomianism and Judaism. He just happens to use Jewish Nomianism as his example. You'll see. Let's begin with Paul's argument and definition of what I mean by Nomianism. Romans 2, verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. This introduces us. It begins with a transition out of verse 11. Look back up at verse 11. I didn't read it, but that's where we ended last week. You notice Paul had just stated that there is no partiality with God. So what he means is, God does not change his standards from one person to the next person, to another person. No human being is going to be graded differently than any other. So... No one should expect special treatment when they show up at the judgment. He's going to judge each person against a set of expectations, or let's call them laws, that he has established irrespective of who you are. And he will assign an eternal outcome to each person that is eminently just. And God is so impartial that he even holds us accountable regardless of whether or not we know what his expectations are. So Paul says in verse 12, he begins talking about the law here. He says, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Now, with that comment, he raises the notion of this third religious system I call nomianism. Nomianism is the pursuit of righteousness by means of observing laws. Or we could say rules. The largest world religions, Catholicism, Islam, follow this system. Together they collectively have the majority of human population under their systems. Those systems, in different ways, prescribe an intricate series of rules and rituals, and they teach that those are the methods to getting you into heaven. That if you follow the rules, if you keep the rituals, you can earn your way into heaven. They will also usually include a belief that they own an exclusivity in those rules. That in other words, Catholics believe that only Catholics can go to heaven. Muslims believe that only Muslims can go to heaven because their rules are the only rules that matter. So if one does not have the right set of rules, then you're going to perish. Paul addresses this idea as he opens this topic in verse 12. He says in the first half of the verse, he actually agrees with that thinking because he says those without God's law will perish in their ignorance. He's saying if you don't have the right law... Your ignorance is not a defense. They perish, of course, because they don't keep a law if they don't know it. And therefore they've sinned. And if they've sinned, then they will pay the penalty for it. No man or woman facing God on their judgment day is going to be able to claim that they deserve heaven despite their sin because, well, I didn't know what the law required. Ignorance of the law will not be a defense. They will experience the second death of spending eternity in the lake of fire. Now, if that sounds unfair... Remember, we follow exactly the same principle in our law. If you drive too fast through a school zone, not realizing the school's in session, you're still going to get a ticket. If you don't pay taxes because you didn't realize you owed some tax that you owed, you're still going to pay a penalty for failing to pay those taxes. You can't say, I didn't know. Ignorance of the law is not a defense in our system, and we accept and understand that, because if it could be a defense, no one would ever follow the law. And we would always claim ignorance, and there'd be no way to convict anyone, right? We understand how that could be abused so easily. And for the same reason, God follows that same idea. If you could enter heaven with sin and simply qualify because you didn't know it was sin, 
well, then we would be well suited to remain ignorant of God. It certainly would serve no larger purpose in glorifying God if that was the way things worked, right? So, Nomianism agrees with this philosophy in theory. That is, they maintain that good people are those who keep the rules, bad people are those who break the rules. When good people keep rules, they will be rewarded. When bad people break rules, they will be punished. So, in a very simple mindset, Nomianism agrees with a basic rule of thumb for how things work. How they work in life, and they presume how it works with God. Many people find this thinking very appealing. It's rational. It seems sensible to the world, doesn't it? Especially if you've been raised in a Greek-thinking Western culture where we're taught to respect law and order and that playing by the rules is the right way to achieve what you want. You've been raised to appreciate that hard work will get you what you deserve. And so it makes sense when someone tells us that God rewards us by the very same kind of criteria. If we keep His rules, if we observe His rituals, show up on Sunday, tithe, kneel when you're supposed to, stand when you're supposed to, do all the stuff, well, then you get to go to heaven. It appeals to some sense within us. But if that's true, then, of course, the opposite's also got to be true, right? If you break God's rules, well, then you should expect to pay the price for lawbreaking. Your punishment is just deserts. As the saying goes, you do the crime, you should be prepared to do the time. While nomianism largely holds true in human society, I mean, this is a general rule of thumb for how life works for us, and it's, it's true, it conceals a fatal flaw when you try to use that system to explain God and His standard for heaven. And here's the fatal flaw. Nomianism claims that keeping rules is required. All of these nomianistic systems teach that you have to live according to the rules and the traditions in order to gain righteousness, and that if you fail to do that, you earn damnation, but it goes on to make exceptions for those who don't keep rules. Everyone breaks the rules. Sooner or later, everyone breaks the rules, and nomianistic religions assume their followers will fail to keep the rules, and that those violations do not automatically disbar you from heaven. <laughs> Because conveniently, these religious systems have more rules to cover the inevitable violations and restore those sinners back into good standing. For example, Catholics teach that when you violate Catholic dogma, you can receive absolution through confession and by doing penance. Mormons, another nomianistic system, Mormonism, they prescribe a process called repentance and restitution. Muslims are taught that they can be forgiven by praying day and night, calling upon Allah using specific names that they must memorize. Rule-breaking Jehovah's Witnesses have to submit to a re-education process while demonstrating a proper repentant attitude. And so Nomianism holds that pursuing the rules is sufficient to gain God's approval. You don't actually have to keep them. Have you ever heard someone describe themselves as a good Catholic or a good Muslim? They aren't saying they're perfect, usually. What they're saying is they sincerely try. They sincerely make an effort at the system that they've been given. So here's the central flaw in nomianistic logic. They profess that keeping rules is the way to heaven, but they quickly acknowledge no one keeps rules, and yet every system includes more rules for how the guilty amend for breaking rules. That's the flaw. Somehow they expect in the midst of all that, they're still going to get a good judgment in the end. I mean, what is it? You either have to keep the rules or you don't. A cynical follower of any of these systems might conclude that they could just ignore the rules altogether and pursue a life of sin to their own enjoyment, but as death approaches, 
then they just perform whatever those steps are for absolution and they can still get into heaven in the end. They could manipulate the system, right? That kind of hypocrisy is the logical outworking of nomianism. It's very similar in some ways to the lie that moralists profess because both nomianism and moralism pervert the standard that God uses. Moralism overestimates our goodness and assumes that we measure up to God's standard of heaven. Nomianism underestimates God's standard by assuming that our mistakes aren't disqualifying. It's the two sides of the same counterfeit coin. In the second half of verse 12, Paul moves to exposing the hypocrisy. He reminds them that those who sin under the law will be judged by the law as well. To be under the law here would mean to have been notified of God's rules and therefore to be obligated to keep them. And such a person who continues to violate those rules, despite knowing them, is going to have to receive a penalty, right? Because the law will condemn them. Therefore, what Paul's teaching in that first verse is there is no advantage to having the knowledge of what God's rules are if you're not putting that knowledge to use. And since God shows no partiality, you can expect him to take note of every single rule you break. Paul targets this flaw in verse 13 when he declares that God does not give credit for effort. That's my paraphrasing. Those who wish to be judged by the law, you better be prepared to keep the law. Because only those who keep God's law perfectly will expect to be justified. That word means to be declared innocent. So Paul's statement single-handedly defeats both moralism and nomianism. Because God's standard for entering heaven isn't as low as you had hoped, and you're not as good as you assume. And that means there's a gap there. Obviously, when he talks about those who are under the law, he's alluding to the Jewish people. Gentiles did not receive the law of God, so they are the ones who are without the law. Jews were given the law at the mountain as part of the covenant with Moses in the Old Testament, and they agreed to keep it. And that's why Paul raises them by mentioning those under the law, because what he's going to do at this point is he is going to use Jewish nomianism as his example. Perhaps no one in the world practices nomianism more fervently and more scrupulously than a Jew who's trying to follow the Mosaic law. Many Jews throughout history have made that very mistake. They have tried to be righteous by zealously keeping the law that had been given to them. And that twist is what turned the law that God gave Moses into the lie of nomianism. But to be clear, I'm not saying Judaism is nomianism. King David or the prophet Daniel, as another example. Like all Jewish saints, they practiced Judaism as they were told. They followed the law as they were told. But Scripture testifies that neither of them sought to be righteous before God merely by observing the law. That's not what they put their trust in. So you have Judaism in a broad sense, but you have people within Judaism who have misused the law as a means to righteousness in itself. That's nomianism in a Jewish flavor. But rule-keeping Jews distance themselves from other religions who also try to keep rules, like Catholics and, and Muslims and so on. They distance themselves in their own minds because they see themselves as having an inside track to God that the other ones missed. While Muslims and Catholics and Mormons and all the other Gentile nomianistic religions are also following their own rules and they're all trying to get to God the same way, Jews know that those Gentiles are following the wrong rules. Because only Israel received the law of God. 
having been given God's law directly to them by the finger of God, they know that they have the right rules and they suppose that that alone makes the difference for them. That's the differentiating thing for them. They get to go to heaven, Muslims don't. Why? Because they have the right law and the Muslims have the wrong one. This is Jewish nomianism. It's always been prevalent within the Jewish nation. You see it very obviously in the Gospels. The Pharisees of Jesus' day were the epitome of nomianism. They claimed to keep the Mosaic law perfectly and they found confidence in the fact that they had the right law matched to the proper level of piety. Jesus exposes that hypocrisy over and over again in the Gospels. He calls them whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside only, tying up all these heavy bundles and laying them on others. They're not willing to carry them themselves. It was a big game. The sad truth is that even the most accomplished practitioner of nomianism will be disappointed upon their death when they learn that their efforts were insufficient. The law of God is simply too demanding, and their ability to keep that law is woefully inadequate. Every day, many, quote, good Catholics or Muslims or Mormons are entering into an eternity of punishment because they lacked the right rules and they lacked the ability to keep them. But likewise, there are also many, quote, good Jews entering punishment as well, even though they had the correct law. Because, as Paul said, it only matters if you keep it. To prove his point, he raises the example of a Gentile who knows nothing of the law of Moses, yet instinctively conforms his life to that law's requirements. Verses 14 through 16. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So he talks about a Gentile. This is a, an example of someone, theoretically, he's talking about. A Gentile who has the law instinctively. That could also be translated by nature. So it refers to someone who has a certain desire within them to do things a certain way, but that desire was never taught to them. No one ever sat down and said to them, this is what you must do. It was there naturally, instinctively. Like when a Gentile might show mercy or charity, or when a Gentile respects another man's property, or tells the truth, or honors his marriage vows. All of those things are doing the law in the sense that you are working in concert with what God would expect under those circumstances. But it didn't require that someone explain that to him necessarily. Paul says he's showing the work of the law written on his heart. We have another word for that. We call it conscience. What is the work of the law? Well, the work of law is to produce righteous behavior, to encourage righteous behavior, to define it and to lead people to knowing what it should be. And Paul says when you see someone doing what is effectively the law but yet they didn't know it. You're seeing the law of God at work in his heart, in his conscience. God is at work in mankind like this all the time. It's why you see otherwise sinful people accomplishing good things from time to time. Why do rotten, selfish, sinful people who don't know Jesus still want to run out and help at a hurricane? Well, they may have some intrinsic reason for doing it, some selfish reason for doing it, but the point is they did it. And when you see someone working in those merciful ways, you're seeing the hand of God working in the heart of man, unconsciously, if you will, to achieve something for the good of what God plans to do. Paul says you're seeing the law at work in that person, at least in that moment. And Paul says that person's conscience will ultimately be their witness when they stand before the Lord. Their conscience will defend them for those times when they followed it, but likewise their conscience will stand as a witness against them, accusing them 
in those times when they ignored it. And every human being is going to have a little of both. Absent Christ, I'm saying. We're talking about unbelievers. Paul's point is that Jews who have the law should take no satisfaction in the fact that they have it. The only question that will matter in the end for them and for Gentiles is whether they kept it. Because if a Gentile can be doing it without knowing it, then a Jew cannot be doing it, though he knows it. It just shows that it has not have a direct influence on whether you're righteous or not. In verse 16, Paul says, A day is coming when we will be judged, and even the secret things that we have said or that we have done will be exposed. And that judgment, of course, he says, comes through Christ. And what he means by that is, Christ is not only the judge, he will judge us against himself. That's what we mean when we say Christ is the one through whom we are judged. We aren't judged against ourselves. We aren't judged against our friends. We aren't judged against Hitler. We're judged against him. So if you want heaven and you believe in a nomianistic method of getting there, I'm going to do it by doing a bunch of good things and keeping all the rules, well then, you must keep the right set of rules, the law of God, and you must keep it as well as Jesus did. Many Jews in Paul's day probably would have said they do. They would have honestly believed that they merited that standard. In fact, today, the Orthodox, especially the ultra-Orthodox, many of whom live in Israel, they would tell you that that's where they are. They believe that they are absolutely meeting the standards of the law. And they're holding essentially the same point of view that that young ruler had in the lesson we've taught the last couple of weeks, who approached Jesus. You remember when Jesus rattles off various commandments as an expectation for righteousness, what did he say? I've kept all those from my youth, which is a ridiculous statement, because we know what it really requires. So Paul has shown that nomianism has a flaw in that we are too willing to accept a lower standard than what God offers, but we have to make sure that that self-deception has been completely dispelled. So the next thing he does is expose that self-deception, the one that drives nomianism among Jewish people, this self-righteousness that's apparent, by showing them that they're not actually keeping the law, even when they think they're trying to keep the law. By the way, this is a very pertinent conversation among those within the church uh, that I find from time to time who have started to revert back to adopting Jewish law as icing on the cake of grace. You know, I'm there in Christ by grace, but let's also do all the Jewish things. Be very careful with that, of course. And if it has any tinge at all of enhancing your righteousness, they've slipped into nomianism without realizing it. Verse 17, Paul now dispels that. He says, If you bear the name Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth, you, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Paul's talking to the one who is a Jew, he says, and relies on the law and boasts in God. What he's describing there is a Jew who relies on nomianism. In fact, it's actually described really nicely. He says, first, they call themselves Jew. Now, you don't need to call yourself a Jew. You either are or you aren't. 
but yet there are people who make a point of calling themselves Jew. And what he means is they have made a point of noticing for themselves and for the sake of others that they are part of a privileged group. They have the right rules. I remember before I came to faith in my late 20s, I grew up in a family who was Catholic. And before I knew the Lord, whenever I might get into a conversation with someone who was Christian, who might be looking to help me understand the truth, I would normally fall into a very defensive stance because I was Catholic. And my stance was predicated on that defense. I wanted you to know I'm defending Catholicism and that you're attacking my identity as a Catholic. Being Catholic was the point, not getting to heaven. He's referring to Jews who have a similar angle on their perspective on Judaism. They're a Jew, and that's important because it makes them part of that privileged group, and they're trusting in that privileged association. Secondly, you rely upon the law. That's a very important phrase. You could take the word law out of there and just put rules for our sake tonight. They rely on the rules. What he means, of course, is you're relying on the law for your righteousness, which is nomianism. And then finally he says, and you who boast in God, which means they believe God is pleased with them in light of their attempts to keep all of these rules. Remember, I said Paul is focused here on the Jewish side of this because this is his audience, this is his background, but the description would apply equally to everyone. Other systems of nomianism simply change the nouns in the sentence Paul wrote in verse 17. Let me change a few for you. For example, we could say, you who bear the name Catholic and rely upon the magisterium and boast in Mary. Or we could say, we could say, you who bear the name Muslim and rely on the Quran and boast in Allah. Or you who call yourself Mormon and rely on the Book of Mormon and boast in Moroni. That's exactly what Nomianism preaches. That's what every good Catholic, good Muslim, good Mormon is thinking every day they wake up. It's all the same thinking. It's all conceit. It's all self-righteousness. But the Jewish people have a different angle on this than the rest because they do have the right law. And they knew they did. And we agree that they did. And that gave them even greater sense of self-righteousness. Paul says in verse 18 that they knew the will of God as revealed to them in his word. He acknowledges that. And they approved the things that were essential. What he means there is that they accepted and practiced the rituals that the Lord gave to Israel to make them distinct in the world. The Greek word for essential is really speaking to their distinction in the world. Things like the feasts, the sacrificial system, the dietary laws. He says, you've bought into the whole system. You understand that it is from God. These things have been revealed to you in His Word. And so you have the right law. The question, though, remains for you, O Jew, who boasts in these things. Are you keeping it? Paul answers that question by asking a series of rhetorical questions. So he answers his own question with questions. They all expose the hypocrisy. He begins by drawing their success into question. He asks, Okay, so you're confident that you are a guide to the blind and light and darkness, corrector of the foolish, teacher of the immature... You notice the language he's using there? It's very sweeping. It's very lofty. But because it's so over the top, it shows you his skepticism as to their claims. We might say, like, oh, you think you're so great. It's saying that in more specific terms. But notice how he ends in verse 20. He asks if they believe they're merely that way because they possess the law, as if the law had produced these outcomes in them. When he says the law has become the embodiment of knowledge and truth for them, the word embodiment... It literally means outward form. That's a literal translation of the Greek. Outward form. So Paul's asking them, has the presence of the law all by itself produced this outward result of righteousness from you? It would be like asking, if I gave your son a rule book for the game of baseball, would possessing the rule book all by itself cause your son to become a Hall of Fame pitcher? 
That's what he's asking them. You say you're this and you're that and you're this and you're that because you have the law? As if the law created that outward effect in your life automatically? And then Paul, knowing that someone in his audience might have actually answered yes, Paul narrows his point a little more in his examples. In verse 21, he asks the Jew, okay, so you claim to teach the law to others. Are you sure you're actually doing what you're telling other people to do? You who preach that you can't steal, have you ever stolen? And he asks the same things about adultery and idolatry. The reason he can ask those things, because you might look at that list and go, well, that's not a very tough list, Paul. I bet most people can say no to those things, right? You're not challenging their self-righteousness very much. Why didn't you ask if they lie? But the truth is, these were very common weaknesses among Jews. Jews were famous for finding creative ways to do things to get around their own laws. Like, they're not allowed to charge interest when they lend money to one another. But that didn't stop them. They found ways to get money in the form of interest without calling it interest, which is effectively stealing if it's against the law. So no, they didn't rob a bank with a mask, but they found plenty of ways to take money that it wasn't theirs to take. They also found very creative ways to dissolve marriages. Jesus accosts the Pharisees for their willingness to give certificates of divorce willy-nilly, and they typically did it for those who had enough money to pay the required fee. And they would rob pagan temples. You know, they saw it as a work of righteousness to take all the bad idols out of all the bad temples, but of course these idols were made of gold. So they would just take the gold and keep it for themselves. And that, in effect, is revealing their true God. Their true God, their true idolatrous God, was money. And Jesus actually calls out the Pharisees for that at times. He says they were lovers of money. Paul's point is obvious. The Jewish people, and all people, who practice nomianism, fall short of the rules somewhere. They actually obey it selectively and inconsistently. And I speak as a former Catholic. You know, you went to church because you were supposed to, unless you didn't want to. And you went to confession on Saturday night, except most of the time. It just shows you it's all a game in our heads. So they are breaking the law, even as they claim to follow the law, which cannot be righteousness. I mean, think about it. If they say law is important, and then they are lawbreakers, they're convicting themselves by their own standard. So here's the short of it. No one who pursues righteousness by keeping rules will be found innocent. Period. And even if, and this is how bad it is, you come up with a new religion tomorrow, one of laws, but you reduce it down to one law. That's it. One law is all you've got to follow to be good in this system. You're still going to break it sooner or later. And if you doubt me on that, remember, Adam had one law. And we know how that turned out. So the conclusion is inescapable. In verse 23, Paul says, those who boast in the law are actually dishonoring the Lord who gave them that law because they break it. Notice how he changes something there? He says boast in the law. Earlier he said boasting in God. Because what he's saying is, this is the truth about your system. This is the truth about nomianism. Your rules are your God. And you seek to serve the rules that you set for yourself. Remember what the Pharisees said to the blind man that Jesus healed in John chapter 9? After he's healed and he's giving his testimony and they want to know who healed him? And at one point, after he said what he believed, it says in John nine twenty eight, the Pharisees reviled him and said, You are his disciple, referring to Jesus, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. What's insightful about that is they admit to being disciples of Moses, not of God. And here's what they mean. They say they follow Moses because God spoke through Moses. But what they're truly saying is we're disciples of what God gave Moses, the law. 
Because we know those rules came from God. You hear them saying this? We know we've got the right rules. So we're following those rules. We're disciples of those rules. To prove that his assessment is correct, Paul quotes scripture at the end there where he says, God actually foretold Israel's hypocrisy. Paul is quoting from Isaiah 52.5 in verse 24, where the prophet described that that behavior was going on in his own day. This is a, back in the context of that chapter of 52 of Isaiah. God's speaking through Isaiah, but he's speaking about the nation of Israel in that day. Israel in that day, God said, was blaspheming God before the Gentile nations who didn't even have the law by their failure to keep the law. But think about that. If God declares that those who fail to keep his law are blasphemers, he said that in the past about his own people, well then what prospect did these Jews have of reaching heaven if they're not keeping the law now? Do blasphemers go to heaven? Not according to Judaism, they don't. So their eternal future is in jeopardy, though they try to keep the law, because they're doing something that God has already declared is blasphemy. So what does it say about their prospects? You see his argument. Paul then goes to the end of the chapter, verse 25. He says, For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, who though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. You can already detect Paul transitioning into a third topic. He's not there yet, but you'll see it clearly next week. But he's still talking here about nomianism. And he says, simply put, having the law, which is what Jews have, is of no advantage if you don't keep it. Paul said, and he's using the term circumcision here as a label for those who are Jewish with the law. And he says, their circumcision is only a value to them if they live according to the law. And that's a euphemistic way of saying that those in Israel have to do the law, and it doesn't matter that you just received it. And he says, if the circumcised Jew is a transgressor of that law, then he might as well be an uncircumcised Gentile, for all that counts, for all that matters. What he's saying is this, it's no better to be a Jew than to be Catholic or Muslim if you don't live up to the standards revealed in God's law. I defy you to say that out loud in Israel. If you went to any Jew and said, if you will not keep the law perfectly, you might as well be Muslim, it doesn't gain you any advantage to keep it partially. Obviously, that would be intentionally provocative, and so I would never do that, because I value my life. But my point in that is, because you know what response you would get, you're seeing for yourself in that, that their attitude is, because I'm Jewish and I have the right law, how well I do on that law is not so much the point with God. And yet it's exactly the point with God. Our identity offers no advantage unless it's an accurate description of our heart. It all comes down to performance. A Gentile will get credit for keeping the law, though he never was a part of Israel, even though he has the wrong identity. And such a one will stand as a witness, Paul says, against the Jew who ignored the law despite having the privilege to have received it. So here's his conclusion. Your outward condition, including what you do, how you perform, is not a measure for righteousness. You cannot be judged by how you perform or by which system you perform within. 
So Paul says a Jew, and what he means by that term is someone who is honestly pleasing God. Someone who is working properly within what God has given. That's what he means by Jew in this context. That is not determined outwardly. The mark of a true follower of God is not something made in the flesh, it's made in the heart by the Spirit. Uh, Here's a good analogy. You imagine a bottle with a label on the outside of the bottle. That label's description does not determine the contents of the bottle. If you scratch out that description and you write a different description, the contents of the bottle don't magically change to match what's on the outside, right? Instead, the contents of the bottle will determine what the description on the label should be. And that's Paul's point to the Jew who's trying to follow law. Their approval won't be determined, Paul says in verse 29. He says, their approval will not be determined by the letter. And that's referring to the law. Or you could say to the description I mentioned in my analogy. Notice in verse 27 earlier, he referred to the letter of the law. So when he says letter here, he's just shortening the thought. Something written down, something that you're prescribed to do. So your approval before God will not be determined by your accomplishment under some law. Everyone who is a believer, and certainly those who aren't, needs to remember that, that truth from Scripture. Your approval before God is not determined by your accomplishments under some letter or law. Not even the Mosaic Law. It certainly won't depend on the praises of men. Only God sets the standard for heaven. Only He can determine approval for our entrance into that place. So to summarize the lie of nomianism, it is a religious lie that claims we get righteous by observing laws and rules and rituals. It's the philosophy of major religions, including that of many Jews. Its chief mistake is overlooking the impact of breaking rules. Everyone breaks rules in these systems, but they all assume God doesn't mind. And even within Judaism, which does have the right rules, they still ignore the consequences of breaking their own rules. But the Word of God says, those who break the rules will be judged for breaking the rules. How do you and I reach out to those who are trapped in these kinds of systems, of religious rule-keeping systems? And to be honest, it's kind of hard. It's really hard sometimes to pull people out of these systems. Jews, Catholics, Mormons, Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, they're some of the hardest people to evangelize. Uh, And I say that's true for at least two reasons. First, Nomianism or nomianistic systems tend to be very rooted in the culture. So generation after generation of families tend to participate in the same systems. We teach the systems to our kids. So that means that a person's very identity is wrapped up in this system. I had that experience as a Catholic. I was defending my identity when you attacked me. I went to a Catholic high school. It was all about being Catholic. Furthermore, if you indict the system, which is what you're doing when you tell people that it doesn't get them to heaven, you're inevitably indicting their system, as you should. You're also implying that their deceased family members and friends are not in heaven right now. And often, that implication alone is enough to threaten the person's sense of well-being that they will shut down the conversation at that point. There's no easy way to address that concern except perhaps to just redirect their attention back to themselves to questions of their future because they're still alive. If they find the truth of the gospel compelling, then there'll be time to reconcile with the implications. No one, by the way, has a perfect family history. So everyone, no matter whether they come out of a nomianistic system or whether they're atheistic, everyone has that story. It's not unique to this group. It just seems to threaten them a little more. But there's a second reason in this system, these systems. People who are caught in nomianistic systems will typically have some trouble accepting the notion that entry into heaven is not based on personal performance. 
Because when you tell them God is even prepared to grant a murderer entry into heaven, they just reject the idea is illogical or unfair. It doesn't seem to make sense. Everything they've seen in life, all achievements of life, but for the most part, are based on performance and reward and punishment from the earliest age. That's life in general. So how do they believe that a creator would work in some fundamentally different way? It's hard for them to grasp. Where you go for that person is something Jesus did in Matthew 5. Jesus addresses that particular objection specifically when he was talking to some very committed law keepers, Pharisees. Matthew 5.17 He said to them, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Well, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So here's his strategy. It begins by acknowledging that performance is required to enter heaven. You're not asking that person to believe that performance doesn't matter. Performance does matter. In fact, even those who would have suggested in Jesus' day that he was attempting to abolish the law, Jesus says, no, they've got it wrong. By the way, that's the essential objection coming out of anyone who's trying to see the world through a nomianistic system. Their basic objection is that they reject the idea that God doesn't care about rule-keeping. They don't think that makes sense. You mean, I can just do whatever I want. And that starts to sound nonsensical to them, right? Well, guess what? Jesus agrees with them. He says that setting aside even the least of the law will have negative consequences, while those who keep and teach them will be honored. So Jesus says, I came not to get rid of law, but to fulfill the law. And the word fulfill in Greek means to accomplish in full, to fully carry out. So Jesus is saying he came to keep all of those rules for us so that we wouldn't be judged by them when we fail. And so that's your first answer to someone caught in these systems. The gospel message does not claim that God does not care about keeping rules or keeping law. On the contrary, the gospel tells us all of those rules have already been kept for us by Jesus. He lived that sinless life. He didn't break any of the rules, so he's already done all of those rules. He's fulfilled them all. All the things necessary to satisfy our entry into heaven have been done. The performance was already given. That's the message that starts the conversation. Now, on the other hand, should a person remain determined to just keep them themselves? Well, then Jesus answers that in the second half of what I've read. He says, well, then you better be prepared to meet the standard that God is going to use when he judges what you do. Remember, nomianism underestimates the consequences of breaking rules. People caught in those systems are taught that breaking the rules is no big deal. And they only need to say a few words, perform a certain ritual, and then God forgives and God forgets. Jesus says, no, no, no. Your righteousness under law, under these rules, needs to surpass that of the Pharisees, which it's an unimaginable standard Jesus just set. They lived a lifestyle that you and I can hardly even relate to or imagine. Few of us would even tolerate it for more than a day, what these guys were doing. Their every minute of life was directed by scrupulous rule-keeping. 
They fasted several times a week. They said prayers at all hours. They tithed even on the herbs that grew in their garden. Any way they could divide activity in life into rights and wrongs, they were focused on that all day long. I mean, it would, it would make most of us just go insane to think like that. I think maybe they were a little insane. So rule-keeping drove their every thought and action. And you can see examples of this even still today, in Israel at least, this extreme nomianism when you look at what ultra-Orthodox do. So Jesus says, okay, if that's your standard, he says, guess what? It's not high enough. You still would have to do more than them. And if you want to know how exacting God's standard is for anyone who's trying to keep their own rules, he says, you've no doubt heard that there is a law, that murder is a sin, and if you murder, you're going to be judged by God, and everyone's nodding, of course, of course. And anyone who's caught up in nomianism would agree that, yeah, of course, murderers shouldn't go to heaven. Of course, unless that person is a murderer, and then they'll have a different rule. But, yeah, murderers shouldn't go to heaven. Well, Jesus says, guess what? The standard's a lot stricter than that. Have you ever been angry with a brother? Have you ever said an unkind word against someone? Have you ever just assessed someone to be a fool? Each of those offenses is sufficient to put you in hell all by itself. So, if you're the kind of person who's taken comfort in the fact that you've never committed murder... You should take a second look at your life. Are you sure you have the right rules? Are you sure you're even keeping the ones you have? Are you sure God is so willing to overlook your mistakes? And if God is willing to overlook your failure at the rules, why are you even trying to keep them anyway? How does anyone know when they've done enough to satisfy God under a system like that? Why are you sure you'll be in heaven? Or maybe you're the person who has committed murder, or you've done something you feel is equally disqualifying. And so what you struggle with is finding any hope that any system will give you any reason to enter heaven, right? Because they all have the same basic expectation you have to be good. And whenever we want to cite the person who's not good, we'll run quickly to that offense or some like it. Jesus says, guess what? You're in the same boat with that person. So on hell's death row... You're going to find murderers sitting next to those who hate, next to those who use profanity, and next to the guy who called someone a fool once. So if calling someone a fool is disqualifying for heaven, then who can qualify? Clearly, any system based on personal performance, which is what nomianism is, that ain't going to make you righteous enough. If, if anything, it would just expose your sin and leave you vulnerable to more judgment because it would just cite you for all the wrong things you're doing, right? And so you have to look for another solution. That's where we're going to keep going. We end, as we end chapter 2, we'll get into chapter 3 next time. Take, just take a moment, though, and notice his transition, how we ended there. He's discussing the nature of a true Jew versus those who misuse the law. That's one major way you can distort Judaism. Turning the law into something it was never meant to be, which is a recipe for getting into heaven. But there is another way that Judaism can be distorted. And in this, fourth, this second way of distorting Judaism, you find the fourth major way that people lie concerning religion. And it's unique to Judaism. That's why we save it out apart from the other three. Uh, I'm going to refer to it as Judaism, but I'm not here, again, I'm not talking about authentic Judaism. It's the system of assuming righteousness by identity. Because they knew they had the one true God, because they knew they had the one true law, they are a unique people on earth. And being part of that club, for some, seems to be reason enough to expect to be in heaven. There's no other group of people on earth who have that same kind of linkage to the true God. So they are uniquely suited to this error. 
And it was a major force in the church in Paul's day, which is why he saves it out last. It will run to the first half of three, then we quickly end that and go into the heart of the letter at that point, which is how do you get to heaven? If you follow the track of what he does in chapters 1 and 2 and into 3, you end up in a corner. Because no way you can imagine getting to heaven works anymore. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope we have in Jesus. The one who did the law, the one who lived the perfect life, the one who had no sin. There could be no other way, could there, Father? For if the standard is perfection and none of us have any hope of that standard, then there has to be someone who gets us there on, on their merits and not ours. And you made that way available in Christ. And we're thankful for it, Father. I pray that what we've learned tonight about how some others think and what they're taught will be something we can use when we speak to them in kindness and in love so that we can relate to them even as we ask that they would consider Christ. Let us have the experience, perhaps, Father, of bringing someone from one of those worlds into the faith, Father, for we know it's your work, not ours, but what a joy it is to partner with you as you do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.